good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. to horror queers we're talking Chekhov's security alarm we're talking slow motion and we're talking white radio personalities named kingfish and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking a uh, low gray bridget fonda in the form of seth cohen's mother how dare you <laughs> how dare you sir i uh everyone we are talking Candyman, farewell to the flash otherwise known Candyman 2 you might be asking yourselves, horror queers, why are you talking about this shit movie? And I... <laughs> Ouch. Okay. This movie does have fans. No, it does have fans. No, we're actually we're actually discussing it because it does have a queer director in the form of future like directing juggernaut Bill Condon, which I think is insane. But also it's not the obvious pick, right? No. I mean, we we will get to original flavor Candyman eventually because that is a legitimately good film. That is also not unproblematic, and there's plenty to discuss there, mm -hmm. but I have always been fascinated by this franchise and its relationship to race and white ladies, and I just think there's a lot going on here that we can unpack. There are a lot of white ladies in here, but I think we're going to need some help, Joe. Yeah. So we do have a special guest on today's episode. Uh, all right, everyone, they have been named Business Equality Magazine's Top 40 LGBTQ Under 40 for 2020. Jesus. They have written for such outlets as Complex Magazine, Out Magazine, Them, Essence, The Root, Blavity, and MTV News, and have also written over 100 articles about the black queer experience. They are also the co-hosts of the Learned Podcast, as well as Jim Lanahan and Friends. And currently, they are an instructor at the University of Redlands and New York Film Academy, where they teach research and representation in television and film. Whew, that's not even the half of it, y'all. But Jeez. please welcome <laughs> Dr. John Paul Higgins. Yay. Thank you for having me. I am so, like, I genuinely, I am so excited to, like, break this down. I wasn't as excited when I, when I so when you initially right. asked me to watch it I was like I wonder why and then I watched it and I was like oh now I know why so I'm really excited to get into this yeah it, it's it's you know admittedly so I, I had only seen the first one before and I will mm -hmm. I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before I actually saw Candyman in high school and I wasn't too crazy about it I was actually that stupid 17 year old that was like well this is really boring it's not really that scary blah blah mm -hmm. blah, blah blah yeah because it's an adult film this is right. adult horror it, it is, is. no horror. and I rewatched it earlier this year I was fortunate enough pre-covid to see it on the big screen mm. and I really 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 enjoyed it I mean again this is like we're talking 13 year difference here right but I was I didn't know what to expect walking into this film and it's it is it is a beast. Mhm. Mm <laughs> yeah, I mean the Candyman franchise is unfortunately the smallest of the big ones if you want to consider it a big one because it only has 3 entries, only two of them went to theaters mm. and they all like they're doing interesting things and yet they're also very odd yeah i don't know like 
I'm I'm super excited that we're getting a new iteration that is, I think, going to finally get it right because these previous iterations are just always missing the mark a little bit. Yeah. Like, I, I would say that my biggest thing was I felt like in the franchise itself. So I've seen all three of them. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen, so I f- saw the first one and the second one when I was like you in middle, middle I think it was middle school or either um, mm-hmm. early high school. And then I saw them again recently when, when they announced that the new one was going to come out, me and my partner doubled down and we watched all three of them. And I think there there's so much subtext around race that it gets muddled. I think that that was for me what happened specifically in the second one that we're getting ready to break down. There's so much subtext around race and, you know, the historical concept around, you know, oppression slash, you know, racism and slavery that you lose the whole story because they don't, I I just don't feel like, I don't feel like it was done well. So, well, it's also like the POV we're coming at here. I mean, of course, yeah. As Joe mentioned, you know, like the first one has its own issues, but then mm-hmm. the, when this one brings in like the genealogy of Candyman, yeah, and you have these clearly white actresses, like de- so so white. <laughs> I mean, and there is I mean, obviously we'll talk about Veronica Cartwright's character and her racism, which is technically mm-hmm. internalized racism, I guess. Right, you're right. But like, yeah, I, so I actually did watch the third one right before we recorded this because i was like you know what why not (laughs) yeah well you almost want to see does the third one double down on these mistakes or does it try to improve it what's going on there and honestly the third one is a campy clusterfuck yes it is yeah it's campy it it also brings in like like latinx and like mexican lore which i think is an interesting choice like (laughs) um okay generosity (laughs) it's basically conflating two completely different cultures and saying oh well this one will also give us a street parade for mm-hmm. a key sequence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's problematic yeah. I, I think for me it was just i think the one thing that bothered me the most about this film so th- there is i mean uh, i felt like because i'm trying to figure out what i want to say without you just right. totally smashing the film right. because it's it's i mean for folks who enjoy horror films it's fun like it is a it is a fun film i mean and it's fun for 1995 fun and that's what right. i mean like it's not it's not a 2020 fun by no. any means but i mean you think 1995 we're not having conversations about you know white supremacy the way that we are now we're right. not talking about the the white savior complex the way that we're talking about it now so you know 1995 i could see going to a theater and you know the same tropes are being played out this white woman you know is working with underprivileged youth and she's doing the best that she can yeah. and god she, bless her yeah god bless her and her brother who has struggled in new orleans and you know and so it just it but for me <laughs> where i start to get kind of like annoyed is the very much you know like even the scene so i'll I'll say this specifically and then i'll shut up the scene when they go back to the house Mm -hmm. and they're walking through the house and then they see the homeless people in the house and it it just felt very i don't know a lot of the the movie is really rooted in this elitist notion of this poor white woman is having all these problems and let's let's you know Candyman (laughs) is coming to also take her and so she's scared and running from the black man it's just I don't know who, like, I'm like, where, why? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I I think we're also, I mean, like, again, this is also, I don't know about the third one, but I know the first two. I mean, we've also got white male directors on Mm, the first two films. I'm fairly Mm -hmm. certain the writers are white as well. Mm -hmm. So it's another case of white people telling black stories. But 
even I mean, again, we're not going to do this because we're going to obviously talk about like the themes of it and everything. But let, let's remove any sociopolitical commentary and just look at this as a horror film. Yeah, this is coming out in 1995. Mm-hmm. The horror genre is essentially dead. Like this is about a year before Scream. Oh, and okay. We're in like the the drudges. Like it's like Halloween Six comes out this year. Freddy's Dead killed the franchise, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare like didn't do any business. Friday Thirteenth is dead because Jason Goes to Hell was a flop. Yeah, this is right before Scream revitalizes the horror genre and it's marketable again. So. Mm-hmm. Even as a horror film, I, I, if you're just looking at, like, just for pure popcorn entertainment, I don't even know. Like, I gave this a two and a half out of five. I think it's totally middling. Like, I think there's some things it does well. It's some things it does not do well. The jump scares in this movie are obscenely Ooh. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bill Condon mm. needs to work on that. I will yeah. say that he calls them booze. I listened to his commentary, and he admits, he was like, I think I was just really insecure directing this, and so I just put in a lot of booze. Uh, okay. But there is one scene. <laughs> there's I mean, one scene, It's a though, choice. <laughs> it's in the house, the scene that John just mentioned, where um basically, like, the, the husband walks out, and, like, mm-hmm. the... Uh, the Annie character walks out like she jump scares him by like grabbing his shoulder. But the problem is you see her behind him. Right, like you see her right. walk behind him before the jump scare. So it's like it's not even a well done jump scare. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. There's a lot. of, And I even think just the way that I don't know. I mean, there's so much. So this is the thing. I don't know about you, but this was what, what I was thinking. I've gone to New Orleans twice mm-hmm, and. Okay. There's just this energy that New Orleans has. And right. I was even thinking to myself, for you know, being somebody who writes, I think to myself, like, how could they have captured that energy in the film? Like, there's a lot there. And I just, I don't, I, I felt like for me, even just on the horror levels, right, I think about, I mean, I'm going to take it outside of the film. So we're even thinking about Coven, right? And we think about American Horror Story. Mm. I felt like Ryan Murphy did such a good job with that season in capturing the kind the of flavor yeah the flavor and the the the, the like the quote-unquote witchery the i don't really right. know what to name it but there's just this energy that new orleans has and i felt like i didn't get it in the film you're right um, i actually do hate coven but that aspect of it i do think that it does really well mm-hmm. um yeah. the so condon I, I didn't pull too many quotes from his commentary although there are a couple that i think are really good he intentionally so he liked the setting of new orleans and i think the setting is great given the story we're being told right. but he wanted to make it not like he wanted Mardi Gras to be a backdrop, not to be, like, the focus. So he intentionally didn't shoot a lot of scenes or, like, have that that party flavor, that, that life of energy that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I'm admittedly an upper-middle-class privileged white boy who grew up in Texas, but my entire family is from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. My mom grew up in a tiny town called Mandeville, like, which is about 20 miles outside of New Orleans. So I would go there a lot growing up to see my grandparents. And it is definitely different. Um, listeners, if you've never been to New Orleans, I would recommend going, not even during Mardi Gras, to be honest. I actually Just prefer go. Oh, yeah, avoid yeah. the Mardi Gras scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't do Mardi Gras anymore. I don't have the, yeah. the capacity for it. <laughs> the liver capacity, yeah. But, but it yeah. is a weird choice, right? Like you have this awesome setting, which to be honest, isn't seen in the horror genre that much. Right. I mean, I, I honestly, even for a film, I'm thinking the closest I can come to is Adam Green's Hatchet. And even then, it's a prologue. Yeah, they do a couple of thrillers. Like, I'm thinking Double Jeopardy spends Ooh, a significant amount of time there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But again, it, it actually feels reminiscent of that, where it's almost a tourism perspective of New Orleans. Like, yeah. clearly, these people don't have a relationship to this city in the Correct. same way. So they're like, okay, we've got parades, we've got crypts, we've maybe got a bit of bayou action. 
it, it feels a little checklisty to me. Very much that. Well, okay. So obviously we have a lot to discuss. So I, I don't really have much production information other than, so this comes out three years after the first film and is released March 17th, 1995. So I actually think that that, that must be intentional because I wonder when, sorry, I'm looking for the date for Mardi Gras because I was trying to see if, because Mardi Gras is always February or March. Yeah, I, I think it's right before Lent. So when is like... Isn't well, so they're trying change. to hit on the Lent angle. It, okay. it changes every year. That's the thing. So yeah, it's always Mardi Gras is always forty days before Lent. That's my Catholic boy coming out. But the church determines when Lent is, which then determines when Mardi Gras is. Oh my God! So Mardi Gras nineteen ninety five was actually February twenty eighth, the day after my sixth birthday. So I do wonder because this is really so St. Patrick's Day if they did it to like time with kind of like a post Mardi Gras Lenten thing. I don't mm-hmm. know. Probably. <laughs> um. So the Bernard Rose who directed the first film oh sorry he wrote and directed the first film he was asked to pin a script for the sequel because obviously Candyman was a big I don't even want to say it was a big hit but it was a successful horror film given everything else that was coming out around the time his script was rejected and there was a um and so okay I actually want to know what y'all think of this quote so this is from Virginia Madsen it's a more recent quote but she said that they originally wanted them to do Candyman 2 with Bernard involved and Virginia Madsen still in a lead role in some capacity but they didn't like Bernie's idea for the sequel they made the Candyman into a slave which was terrible because the Candyman was educated and raised as a free man Bernie wanted to make him like an African-American Dracula which I think is so appealing to the African-American community because they finally had their own Dracula which my mindset on that is well we they uh, like black exploitation and blackula exists so right <laughs> yeah although there is a fraught relationship to black exploitation as well yeah yeah right because the, she goes the candy man was a poet and smart he wasn't really a monster he was sort of a classical figure okay i john i don't so we, we joe and i were kind of discussing this because i was like does this movie retcon does the sequel retcon what they do with the first movie because i know we get that lecture the opening kill of the second movie is this book the book guy mm-hmm. he is in the first movie as the one who tells the virginia madison character helen about Candyman's past i don't like i i thought he was a slave in the first movie i thought that was always indicated but maybe i was wrong no actually i and so i and again i could be wrong too but i all i went into the second movie with the assumption that we all knew that he was already a slave yeah. so i did i mean and that was ultimately kind of what initially I guess happened like but but then there's even this notion of like there's still the story of like where he came from and why he kind of lurks that area that's right. it's it's very much not clear like I mean even just the I don't know I don't know it, it, well, no, no. <laughs> it's so confusing the, the, slavery aside the, the, the concept of okay like yeah he, he was with a white woman like this mob killed him they did the whole Candyman thing they spread his ashes over the ground that would become Cabrini Green okay that, that's the whole thing of the first movie. And so uh, watching the second one, when we get the flashback, I was like, wait, 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 wait. We already know this. Where? Yeah. <laughs> Condon does confirm that the flashback to his death does take place in Chicago. But I was like, okay, but his lover is there. So does she... he's born in New Orleans and they run away to Chicago together. He is The mob chases them to Chicago. They mm-hmm. murder him, spread his ashes. And then she goes back to New Ar- her plantation in New Orleans with the magic mirror. I, I'm really confused. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's possible that, I mean, this is a lot of speculation. But if she was a wealthy white woman, she might have had family and real estate. That when she didn't have a lover and she found herself pregnant without a husband, 
she goes back home. Mm. It, uh, but like, no, no, that is in there. Like, this is us piecing things together. But so, what wasn't so? But so, the scene towards the end when when they get when the woman is reading to her daughter and they have the book. I'm almost that was what made me kind of wonder if that's what the storyline was, was that her family is connected to him because of like, so you you talk about the woman being pregnant. I'm wondering if that was her mother or her great grandmother. And then that, you know what I mean? That's where the line. Oh, 100%. That's what they're saying. Okay. Yeah. These white ladies are all direct descendants of him like 16 generations removed and 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 there's a discussion to be had there again as white women who do like who are mixed race essentially but they Mm -hmm. don't they're obviously white passing this movie is not interested in having that conversation right right (laughs) and that's what made me so eerie about like okay so when i when i got to like the end end of the film Mm -hmm. i'm going well why is he chasing her specifically like we never really don't know (laughs) (laughs) we don't know that and what does he want from her right like this movie i think this movie is fascinated with the idea that oh god it sounds terrible to say but i feel like the movie is interested in how black people can haunt white people and there's maybe a story to be had there but like his it's unclear what it is he wants from his descendants and why he's doing this to them. Like, at least in the first film, the idea is that he's trying to keep his own memory alive. Like, it's a little bit Freddy Kruegerish, where his power is in people's belief in him. Whereas right. here, it's just like, I just want you for reasons unknown. I'm going to murder you. Right. Well, and so watching the third one today, though, someone says a, a quote in the third one. Again, I know it's not really important because it's not in this movie, but where they say, oh, the Candyman is the embodiment of the hatred of the people that murdered him. And so I was like, oh, that gives me kind of grudge vibes where it's like, OK, because, you know, in the first one, it's like, well, why is Candyman killing all these poor black people and not going after the white people, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, OK, that kind of makes sense, though. If he's not, if the Candyman is not actually Daniel Robitaille, if he is just the embodiment of this hatred of these white people... It just takes the form of Daniel. That Mm -hmm. makes more sense to me. But again, it's not mentioned for me, I don't think, until the third movie. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about is a lot of the holes in the second movie. I think think there's a lot of holes in the entire franchise that I think, and that's what happens when you have two different directors or you have two different writers with different visions. And so that's kind of what I felt about the second Candyman. I was going, okay, there's a lot of holes in this film. And I think ultimately, I think this film is more obsessed with this idea of the damsel in distress vibe that lived in a lot of the horror movies in the early nineties, right? This notion of this, because that was the specific scene that made me question like, okay, well then why didn't he kill her was when her boyfriend or fiance, I think he was brought her like the breakfast and then he mm-hmm. kills him i'm going well, why didn't he just kill her too why chase her around new orleans you know for an hour and 30 minutes when you could have just killed her right then and there like it didn't yeah. make sense to me he's just fucking with her mm-hmm. i think when we get to the climax because we'll, we'll, yeah I, I have the exact same question i do not know because he does want to kill her but she is his descendant she's like his great great granddaughter or whatever but why does she need i i don't know why she needs to die but i digress yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll work through it as we go through the plot yeah 
I, so again, I'll rush through this a little bit, but um, basically, Bill Condon is brought on to direct this film. I don't really know why, but in case you had any doubt that this was a gay man, and um, listeners, if you don't know who Bill Condon is, he would actually go on to his next film after this. He would would be Gods and Monsters, which is the um, the film with Brendan Fraser and Ian McKellen that looks at the late years um, or like the the end of the life of James Whale, the director of. Um, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and the and previous episode, The Old Dark House. Mm-hmm. But he would also go on to direct Kinsey, Dreamgirls, Twilight, Breaking Dawn 1 and 2, and the 2017 Beauty and the Beast remake with Emma Watson. Oh, okay. He also co-wrote the Rob Marshall Chicago with Renee Zellweger, and he also co-wrote The Greatest Showman. So... <laughs> So he likes him some musical theater and some sparkly vampires. He (laughs) does like musical theater because, so when asked why he wanted to do this movie, he says, I thought that Bernard Rose had made the scariest movie since the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and it was interesting to see where, hmm, long pause, it reminded me of that moment in Broadway musicals when a chorus line came out, and suddenly there was a gay character on stage, almost acknowledging the fact that for years the audience for musicals had been a gay audience. Well, it was the same with Candyman to a degree, that suddenly it reflected the African-American experience, and they had been such a loyal audience for horror movies over the years. I thought the way that it took the basic ideas of horror and reinvented them was really good. I just love that he, like... Brings in, like, gay Broadway things yeah. <laughs> into this, like, comparison. Yeah. The I'm intersectionality. Like, I, I, it's like, I don't see it, but okay, girl. Like, <laughs> I don't see it, but all right. Well, and it's, it's also, like, a chorus mm-hmm. line, like, wasn't the first, like, Broadway show, musical, or play, or otherwise to have gay people in it, but okay. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and that's kind of what I, like I said, that that's why watching the film, and as I'm replaying it in my head, there's just a lot of questions that I have as to, like, why. I think that's the biggest thing for me. I always tell, you know, I always tell people, when you start to write, and you start to really start to kind of step back and watch things, or rewatch things, you start asking, you know, yourself, I wonder why they made that decision. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of watching a lot of why yeah there was a lot of why like even the scene when when she's getting the snow cone i'm going why like i don't understand that scene at all i don't know why it's there i don't understand the connection between her and that man like i just none of it makes sense to me there are so many question marks that i have watching this (laughs) film i have a theory about that one (laughs) <laughs> I will say though, and this is for y'all and listeners, if y'all get a chance, like the Screen Factory Blu-ray, like Condon's commentary, it's from the 2001 DVD, so it's not a modern one. So you know, I think if he recorded one today, he'd probably have different things to say about, especially the depictions of race in the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's still very forthcoming about it. Um, he's mm-hmm. very much aware of like what he likes, what he thinks he failed at. Like he he gives a really honest and good commentary that I think is actually a really good watch. Um, it doesn't really make me appreciate the film more, mm-hmm. but it makes me understand again some of. <laughs> those decisions you're talking about more yeah right yeah um so yeah uh again march 17 1995 release date released by gramercy pictures and we got a runtime of 95 minutes um i don't know the budget for this film it looks relatively low for a theatrical film but Mm -hmm. i don't know it opens in the number two spot with six million dollars and that is behind the movie outbreak in its second weekend that's timely okay (laughs) <laughs> um, it goes on to gross $13.9 million, so not a huge hit, um, but no. I, I would bet that it did make its money back. Uh, I don't know. I get the impression that this is probably like a $15 million production. Oh, I guess, yeah, maybe low budget for 1995 for like this type of movie was $15 million. <laughs> well, I'm thinking like Lord, this gives off like a Lords of Illusion vibe to me, or a Lord of mm-hmm. Illusion vibe. I can see that. I mean, it is Barker, so... and Actually, because Barker was involved with this one, too, because um, Condon does mention, like, talking to Barker on set and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it is critically reviled. Um, we're looking at a 28% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 4.33 out of 10. 
Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a bad review, and he, his, I mean, shocker, right? It was actually, I think right. he put it in his most hated films of all time list, um, the oh, book that he did. Mm-hmm. But his big thing was like, oh, like, you know, they could be making a grand commentary on slavery and said it's quote unquote just another slasher movie. It's like, well, you can do both. This movie just chooses not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and we get a letterbox score of 5.2 out of 10, which I think that seems pretty much in line. Yeah. This movie is halfway there. I think that's very real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. Uh, that's, that's pretty much my spiel. <laughs> So I was just going to say real quick, the mm-hmm. um, box off, well, the the budget for the film was around six mil and it made Bam. 13. So okay. it, it made up, it basically made its money back and a little bit more. But hmm. yeah, the cumulative gross worldwide was 13,940,383. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So it must have been then that it just wasn't quite good enough slash those reviews well, prevented it from having a I theatrical think the killed third it. film. And just a heads up, in terms of like diminishing returns from the first film, the first film did make about $25 million in 1992. Okay. So it, right. it made about half of what the first one made. Okay. Yeah. And also got slaughtered by critics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this film kicks off with a reading and also a publicity stunt in support of his new book on Daniel Robital. AKA Candyman. So this talk is being delivered by Cambridge scholar Dr. Purcell, played by Michael Culkin. Openly gay actor. There we go. Okay. Oh, cool. So after this stunt, he is confronted in the streets of New Orleans by hothead Ethan Tarrant, played by William O'Leary. Yeah, he's a he's a character that is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to make of this character. Like, I mean, I know yeah. he's there, but like, he's he's here to pop up in the beginning, be in jail for a good amount of time, and then die. Basically, yeah, that is basically what he was there for. He's the inciting incident, but also we have all of the Annie at school stuff, which is really how she gets into the Candyman action. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. So anyway, so Ethan blames Purcell for his father Coleman's death, which Mm -hmm. we will come back to later. It's already getting convoluted, though, right? Like, when I was watching this, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Who are we talking about? Right. (laughs) It's definitely a more protracted opening kill sequence than I expected. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I couldn't figure out whether I was supposed to care or pay attention to the intricacies of these interactions. So I was actually kind of glad when Purcell just goes to this bar, he cruises a black man in the bathroom, and then he is murdered by Um, Candyman, played by Tony Todd. I didn't pick up on that, but yes, uh, Condon does say that he and Culkin um, talked openly about this because they're both gay. And yeah, they they decided to make it be like, oh, he's cruising this, this guy in the stall with him. You wow. didn't pick that up. He is making fuck eyes at this guy when he comes out of the stall. I okay. I thought it was like a like a racist thing where he was oh, like, like he's scared. I, of yeah, him? I, that's what I got. I did not yeah. get cruising okay. at all. Yeah, maybe I was just on like high gay alert. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> and that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's like one of those siren lights that mm-hmm. they have on police cruisers, except right. that it's a strobe ball, like a disco ball, <laughs> a disco <laughs> light. Yes. But no, but I'm actually glad that you picked up on that because I mean, I, it's it's just one of the, it's the only bit of queerness that I really have in the film. But it's just mm-hmm. you know like oh like these two gay men work together to put 
a moment of queerness into this like slasher sequel even though yeah i i, I don't know if it really comes across like that for everybody <laughs> as evidenced right. by me and john's reaction yeah because i go. genuinely thought he was like oh my pearls when yeah, right. the black man came out of the stall that's what i like again for me that's what i got and that's probably because that's the way i live anyway where i'm always like you know everyone's sort of on guard when black people are around so mm-hmm. that's where probably yeah. because of everything my mind was in that moment for sure mm-hmm. that is fair yeah yeah So that is our opening kill, and now we can cue the credits. And then we get some ponderous voiceover, which unfortunately will persist throughout most of this film. Do y'all like this? No. No. It sucks. Yeah. (laughs) I was not a fan of this radio personality, the Kingfish, if only because to me, I mean, it does have a function, so it establishes that there's a timeline to this film. We are three days until Mardi Gras, which is a carnival, which we are told by the Kingfish is also known as farewell to the flesh, which is the subtitle for this film. And like, it makes sense, but I also don't feel like this character, this voice contributes anything meaningful to the dialogue. Like, do we need to know any other information? Could we have not figured it out in any other way? I hate it. I mean, <laughs> how else would we know why the film is called Candyman Farewell right. to the Flesh? Oh my right. god. What, yeah. is a microfiche segment not available? Yeah. <laughs> I will say that this is like the, the box for this movie. Um, this is one of those VHS covers that I would see in Blockbuster all the time and it would always creep me out because it's mm-hmm. like Kelly Rowan with like, you know, the bees around her to the honeycomb and like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, 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 I imagined it like being way more intense as a child. And so watching it finally this week, I was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely not. It's definitely not scary. Mm-hmm. We'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Intriguing? Yes. Yeah, scary? No. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So we are hearing this voice as we are in the passenger side of a vehicle, which is driven by a vulnerable white lady, Annie Tarrant, <laughs> who is Ethan's sister, played by, as you said, Trace Kelly Rowan. And Mrs. Cohen. Yeah. I mean, she's a very attractive lady. I feel like she becomes a much better actress by the time she's in the OC. Cause... Yeah, mm. yeah th- this is not a good performance from her. I, I, I'm sure it's a combination of script issues, but holy fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She is defined by her hair, I find, in this mm-hmm. film. So it's important to note that she is listening to this radio broadcast and she is driving through a very scary black neighborhood en route to her teaching job at St. Vincent's School. <laughs> It, it just immediately, and yeah. I I don't know how I would have felt if I had have watched this back in 1995. I think I rented this with my sister in the late 90s, and mm. I was younger, so I wasn't really paying attention. But it it's just so ham fisted that it's like, okay, here's your protagonist, and also you hope that she's got these doors locked as she's driving through this neighborhood, and it's literally kids playing basketball and people right. just looking at her <laughs> like. But it's framed so threateningly. Mm-hmm. Like in this current moment, I was like, fuck you, movie. Just <laughs> fuck off, really. What we're getting here, too, is basically like Dangerous Minds, but Candyman. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much that. It it goes into this whole idea of, you know, um, I'm, I'm driving in to save these people. That's <laughs> literally what I get when she gets out of the car. And he's like, why are you here? You need to go home. Like, it's just... <laughs> She's like, I have to save these black children. So I don't know. Yeah. But the film doesn't even want to really 
commit to that like it's Mm -hmm. so hesitant to say like yeah that's why she's here it more uses it as a reference to say no she's a good person because she's willing to come and help these kids but also she doesn't give two shits about them when her brother gets in trouble right well but that's the thing too you know it's like dangerous minds like you know as problematic as that is and it's very much a white savior film like at least Uh that's what the movie's about (laughs) right right this movie is just putting it in here like oh look this is what she does but like yeah there's no interest from the film in having a dialogue about it and especially even when matthew disappears later and then just reappears for no fucking reason that Mm -hmm. um, yep it's just like all right well i guess that's a thing Mm -hmm. i've been hanging out at your slave house this whole movie (laughs) oh fuck (laughs) off Petra's slave house. Oh, God. Oh, God. Because oh, <laughs> that is a plot point in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So she gets this quick introduction to sensitive student Matthew, who is played by Joshua Gabrant Mayweather. He's cute. He gets nothing to do. And then she is called home by her drunken Southern Belle mother, mm-hmm. Octavia, who is played by the wonderful Veronica Cartwright. If you're going to have somebody be a racist, drunk old li- white lady, it's you could do far worse than Veronica Cartwright. Well, yeah. So this movie takes itself very seriously, but this performance Wait, you is... don't say. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, but, but this, especially with her accent, like, I was like, I don't know if she's being campy or not. Because I, that character, I got a very campy, but it's, it's like that, you know, that, like... Like when Jenna Malone was doing an antebellum, like that, like that borderline, like over the top racist character, like not uh, quite on that level for me because she doesn't get the same dialogue. But like, just I don't know. Like I was kind of getting that vibe from her throughout this, and so it was a bit tonally off from what everything else in the film was doing. Mm-hmm. I was getting heavy, like Rue McClanahan vibes. From... Yes, very much that. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. if only she had a been less boozy and more sexy, we could have substituted in Rue McClendon. Very much Trace, that. do you even know who I'm talking about? Yes, I know Golden Girls Joe. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yes. Uh, so Octavia is drunk. She is very upset. And she needs Annie to go to the police precinct because Ethan has confessed to Purcell's murder. Because that is still a thing that has happened at this point in the film. So Annie heads to the precinct. <laughs> there she meets cool Detective Pam, who's played by Faye Hauser. Again, an interesting character who gets jack shit to do in this movie. Mm-hmm. Her last scene, I didn't realize it was going to be her last scene when it happened. And I was like, oh, you're just out of the movie now. Oh, yeah, because this movie wants to have cops, but it doesn't know what the fuck to do with them. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what I felt the whole entire movie. Like to the point where you're just like, well, just don't. It 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 reminds me of me when I was a high school kid trying to write screenplays and being like, I'm going to have cops in here, but I don't know what cops do. Mm-hmm. So I'll just have them question someone. Well, That's what cops do, right? And it's a through line. Yeah, it's a through line of all these three films, too, where it's like your white female lead is constantly framed for these murders by the Candyman. And it's well, like, I mean, I guess on that level, it's like, cool, like let's frame all these more but it's, it's like such like a retread like and that's that's what the problem is too because we already know the secret quote-unquote of Candyman. so mm-hmm. the whole investigation of this film just feels like it's it it, the, it kills the pacing because it's like she's not really doing anything we don't really like know already i mean yeah we get the genealogy revealed later but even then it's kind of like i mean eh. yeah it's a middling procedural investigation film that doesn't have a good payoff nope 
none of the payoffs are like yeah they're never there i don't know i just even even when you think you're about to get one it just it falls very very flat mm-hmm. yeah or they even, repeat it <laughs> yeah like even down to in the precinct when you know so i know you're probably going to go there but when the young woman is talking to her quote unquote brother it just that whole scene is very much like why like i just mm-hmm. don't i don't know like i just don't know None of, I I don't understand why. <laughs> the subtitle for this episode is just why question mark. <laughs> like, and to clarify, like I'm not saying that this is a bad movie. Right. It's just it's so middle of the road and you're like at, at least commit to being bad or well, stop trying to be so good. I mm-hmm. do wonder like if I had seen this 10 years ago, would I have enjoyed I mean, I, I I think it's fine. It is a passable film like it is a solid c but i do wonder if just because of the things that it's not taking like the missed opportunities that it has make like talking about that makes it a more interesting film to me because it presents all these things mm-hmm. it just doesn't follow through with any of them yeah and i don't know if like 10, 10 years ago trace would have had the knowledge or like anything yeah, to no. even recognize that in the film i would have probably been looking at this just as a horror sequel and like is it good you know mm-hmm Oh, I 100% gave this movie a pass when I watched it the first time. It never even occurred to me that it was problematic or that it was muddying the waters. It, right. I was just kind of like, oh, I don't really love the cop stuff. <laughs> as as we say about every horror film, by the way. There's right, a lot right. of bad cops. Okay, so speaking of bad cops, we also have judgy prick detective Ray Levesque, who is played by David Giannopoulos? Giannopoulos? Sure. Gian- yeah, sure. David G. David G. <laughs> and uh, these two detectives really think that Ethan, this guy who doesn't seem to have much of a temper outside of confronting people in well-lit New Orleans streets, they think that he has killed at least four people. <laughs> He's a freak. <laughs> <laughs> but he did confess to it inexplicably. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that this movie also doesn't seem to know very well is that there are things like lawyers that exist right and i i don't know <laughs> yes if either of you were like what the fuck where but is like... his lawyer yes that was the question that i had but as i was thinking about that moment when his sister walked in i'm thinking to myself you and never where is his representation yeah who's representing him even his mom like why isn't his mom in the room with him why would they send the sister in that was the mm-hmm. question i had why are we sending the sister in When the mom is there, like, why are we not bringing the family in to have this conversation with him about the supposed death of this man? I don't know. Oh, oh no, John, she's too drunk. She couldn't, she simply could not make it to the precinct that day. Well, but that's what happens, right? Because, yeah, like, like Annie's in school, like, rescuing those poor children. And, like, the mom is, like, drunkenly calling, like, you gotta help your brother. It's like, okay, but, like... (laughs) I'll drop everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, he just y'all y'all are rich enough to be able to live here, but you don't have money to send him a lawyer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and it's hilarious because she Annie fully has a conversation with Ethan. Like, we're this movie loves exposition, so it's very much like, tell us about dad, tell us about this, blah blah blah. And meanwhile, these two detectives are just sitting on the other side of the double sided glass. Right. You know, like taking notes, being like, cool, we're going to use all this to nail this asshole to the wall. And you're just thinking, oh, I I don't think your case would be able to move ahead because you probably didn't even read this guy his rights. Right, right. You just brought him in. 
I will say I was also very confused because it seemed like Paul, the creepy older dude who is hanging around Octavia, the mom, I was like, is he a lawyer? Is he just a family friend? He's got weird sexual chemistry with Veronica Cartwright. And then Mm -hmm. it is revealed that this character, who is played by Timothy Carhart, is actually Annie's husband. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that Annie's husband? (laughs) I was so confused. I was like, who is this creepy old perv? who is like manning this bar like what is this relationship and then they go home and fuck (laughs) ah okay now that makes a lot of sense because it's not clear like when when we are first introduced to this character it seems like he is a side hustle for the mom like there is no room i mean they have no chemistry annie and paul so that doesn't help but also there's no like hi husband peck on the lips you know like looping of the arms or even anything to cue us that these people are fucking even remotely close to Mm -hmm. touching each other's dangly bits nothing it's weird all of it is weird okay so they decide that based on ethan's information they're gonna go to the old house because this family is so fucking rich that they have this giant palatial townhouse and then they apparently also have this old dara leaked my balls what (laughs) colonial home that is rotting somewhere the interesting part for me was it said that the house had been sitting there for 13 years Mm -hmm. and i was like um do houses really look like that if they're not i don't know like i don't know it was weird why would the house be there for 13 years it was just interesting to me like wouldn't it have been cleaned up and sold wouldn't like wouldn't it have been demolished yeah it it just like no they're like well dad died here so let's just let it go but also not keep it up right yeah let's pay taxes on it but let it go i think it's around this time too that we see her trying to like do a self-portrait of herself did y'all did y'all pick up on any themes with that the the artistry in the film so okay um annie is unable to finish a self-portrait of herself because she doesn't know who she is or what her family identity is which comes into play as she unravels the mystery of her genealogy wow (laughs) it's not that she's a bad artist she can't she can't paint herself because she doesn't know who she is (laughs) yes it's all symbolic So is that what that shot, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, is that what the whole thing is when she goes into that boy's room with the dad and like the artistry is hanging in the, in like in his closet? Is that what that whole scene is about? Is about her her and her own struggle with her art? I I mean, that's definitely, I think that's part of it. I think it's also meant to be that Matthew has a better, I mean, you could read it as Matthew has a better sense of who he is, but also that he has a better idea of what is actually happening. So ah. his obsession with Candyman paints him as a bit more of a clairvoyant because, of course, that's also a role that white filmmakers like to give black characters in horror films. Mm-hmm. This person's mm-hmm. a savant. They'll save us. Well, yeah. that, that the third one does the same thing where it's like the black best friend who gets killed halfway through the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, the black best friend, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're always. How are you? How are you, white person? Are you okay? (laughs) That that Rachel True line in horror noir kills me because it's not funny, but also so funny. Because you're just like, yes, Mm. we could do a supercut of black best friends asking their white girlfriends how they are. (laughs) No, but how are you? 
God. So uh, inside the house, they find squatters and we get a view through her very nicely framed window of the nearby slave quarters. And then we also climb through. Basically, we do a redux of the first film where she climbs through a hole in the wall and we find that there's a whole room painted with Christ and church-like imagery of Candyman. I do like this idea, right? Because the first film set in Chicago, this is in New Orleans, so it's almost like Candyman's like like a disease. It's, it's like um, yeah, like a disease. It's like that mm-hmm. urban legend myth where it's like um, oh, like you know, the more people talk about it, the more it spreads, the more mm-hmm. real or not real it becomes. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, and that's it. That's it. I I'm interested to know if the two of you would agree with this, but this film really wants to treat Candyman almost like a figure worthy of worship. Mm-hmm. Like I I know that it's a little bit in there in the first film, but there's so much religious iconography and mm-hmm. it 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 reminds me a lot of some later Hellraiser films. Yeah. where it's an investigation that leads to people who worship these deity-like figures in a way that resembles a kind of Christ-like mythology. Mm. I So I didn't really, I mean, I, I think for me, because, and this may be just my, my own perception, again, I'm not a native from Louisiana nor mm. New Orleans, but because it is such a very spiritual place. I maybe Mm. was wondering if the director or the writer was trying to play with that. It didn't, it didn't come across well, if that was the intent, but I will say that I I think that because it was such a, like a, Oh, we're in new Orleans and we're so close to, I, I felt like there was a lot of, there was a lot of commentary, even though it wasn't a strong commentary on Catholicism as a whole. Right. Um, even with just the whole notion of like the, the, the Pharaoh to the flesh and Lent and all of these other things. So I felt like when you got into there and you saw the actual, you know, Candyman on the wall, it was very much kind of this idea of like, he's always watching you kind of like yeah. God's always watching you or Jesus is always watching you in the ways that it's painted in religion. Yeah. I, th- I think they were going for a more Baroque aesthetic, but you're, you're right, John, because yeah, the, the architecture of new Orleans just lends itself to all of this. And because so much of it takes place like in, I mean, honestly, I thought they were in a mausoleum at first, and then I realized it was the slave plantation house. (laughs) (laughs) Slave plantation house. I almost just wish that the film would have played with this more. Like, this moment where she comes through it, I was like, okay, here we go. This is the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Because there is that kind of gothic sensibility. And, you know, it doesn't hurt that this is also where we're starting to get tinklings of Philip Glass's iconic score. Mm -hmm. However, briefly, they really just don't want to use too much of it. And that's fine. So he he's not normally a movie composer. So for the first film, he just made like 30 minutes of score and gave it to them. And they just chopped it up and put it throughout the film. Uh They used the same. Te- they, they used that score from the first film for this one, and Glass added. F- he he created four new cues for it. He was not a fan of the first film. He thought he was tricked into scoring a horror film. <laughs> oh. uh, he thought it was going to be a much more serious, like drama, uh, like a character study type thing. Uh, it is, but uh, but yeah. So, so it is his score entirely, but it's mostly recycled from the first film with a few new pieces, specifically Annie's theme. Even though we do hear Helen's theme in this movie, well, which. We'll get to that, maybe. Yeah. Oh, but I did want to point out, though, and I know we're going to talk about it later when we get to the actual flashback scene, but going back to your religious aspect, I do think, yeah, there's maybe some... He's not crucified, obviously, but the way he's kind of positioned in the frame during his death scene, right? it does kind of have that crucifixion look to it. So I can see where that may have been the intent. Again, just like 
go for that then. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to do it, then do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Annie goes back to work and <sighs> to prove to these children that there's nothing to be scared of. Oh, she... wait. So, yeah. I, I, no, I have. I wrote this entire thing down because she talks to these children like they're four years old. Yeah. <laughs> this is what so they're freaking out about Candyman, and this is what she tells them and just like this it's just a story a really scary story and these just come from matthew's imagination there are people in this world who do bad things horrible things and when they don't get caught we blame the imaginary monsters for their crimes what the fuck yeah, like, it's these are nanny. these are like teenagers she's talking to, and they seem to have more sense than she does at this point. Yes, a hundred percent. It's like any. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know the lived experience of these children? Right. This is a hundred percent white savior nonsense. Like, mm-hmm. let me tell you how it is. <laughs> also, I'm going to call forth someone who is going to brutally murder a bunch of people yeah. in front of all of you. Yeah. That's actually a, a fascinating aspect, I think, of these films, though, is that, you know, because, again, who the fuck would even say Candyman in front of a mirror five times? It's always, like, like a, it, almost like a show of, like, machismo, despite the fact that it's always coming from women. Mm-hmm. Mostly, yeah. Or yeah. men who are literally trying to enact machismo, like, mm-hmm. by proving mm-hmm. how daring they are. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so she does this, and then it's like, cool, that's done. So she goes home. She and Paul have some exceptionally chaste sex. (laughs) Uh, We have previously learned that he is a bartender. So while she goes into the bathroom to shower, because she's like, well, maybe I'll touch myself a little bit. I'm missing. He is in the kitchen, unable to open a bottle of wine. Wine, yeah. I'm sorry. He's a bartender. (laughs) Right. Paul, you suck. (laughs) It's silly. shitty. Mm-hmm. He's a nothing character. <laughs> he really is. Also, by this point, the movie's almost halfway over. I just want to say that. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Why do I still have so much? <laughs> We've accomplished nothing. And we're halfway through the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, thankfully, uh... this is where we get more Tony Todd, at least. So, yeah. um so Candyman shows up, you know, they they do the whole tete-a-tete. He's like, hey, I'm going to be stalking you for a little bit. And she's like, cool, what? And then yeah. Paul shows up and he is just hoisted into the air and killed in front of her. I do like that she gets a bit of blood splatter on her. And then she like licks her lips a little bit. Yep, right in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, I mean, I, I'll just say it. We've got a gay director and she gets that blood facial, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's skeet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I didn't even think of that. Oh, goodness gracious. That man is nasty. <laughs> it just, it, it does read to me like a bit of a sexual thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because Candyman, this is his introduction to her. So he's like, I'm going to get rid of your supposed quote unquote lover. And he pronounces himself Balak shooting her in the face mm-hmm. he also tells her to swallow her horror so this is true yeah her horror or her whore <laughs> horror horror okay i was like swallow your whore i was like okay it's, girl it's all very sensual you know like yeah. he, he likes to wax poetic about nonsense and stuff and he so he, he goes swallow your horror and let it nourish you yes. come with me and sing the song of misery 
Share mm-hmm. my world, Annie. Like, it's it's just a bunch of nonsense. But yeah. <laughs> it's still really effective because Tony Todd's delivering it. This movie just lives and dies based on... I. Okay, so it is tough because in some parts I was like, you know what the problem with this movie is? There ain't enough Tony Todd. Like, yeah. how do people leave that first film and not recognize we should have more Tony Todd? But then I do think this movie would be worse if there was more Tony Todd because it would just be leaning into him delivering this kind of brava mm-hmm. performance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's so good because you only get these little bits and pieces of him. And I would have I would have worried what would have happened if they had have given him more. But yeah. at the same time, this movie is dead unless he is on screen. Yeah. I don't understand her scratching him. Like, I, it just felt unnecessary. It like, felt like, I, hey, I, we've got a special effects budget. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like the, I think it. I think it's probably the best effect in the film. Because mm-hmm. like, it, it, it looks like, like, like the wax from the House of Wax remake and the bees crawling. Right. Like, I, I am impressed by all the bee stuff they do. There's a lot of bees. But um, but yeah, I, I'm on I'm on your side. I I don't really I don't really get it. Yeah, yeah, it feel it feels like okay. Well, she can fight back. Ooh, but he's he's malevolent. He's impossible. She can't defeat him in this way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, I think it's our first cue that he is invincible, except for his Achilles. You know, his one mm-hmm. thing that can be done to hurt him. Mm. But with that said, kudos to Tony Todd for filming that scene with actual bees on his face. Oh, yeah. He took a lot for this film. I didn't know he filmed that with real bees. I thought that was effects. No, because I'm, I'm again, I, I haven't seen it in a couple of months, but like I'm fairly certain the scene in the first movie when he kisses Helen with the mouthful of bees, I'm pretty sure those are all real as well. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's nuts. Yeah. Condon did say a lot of them got stung quite a bit during this movie. Wow. Oh, God. Thanks. <laughs> I've never been Happy stung. EpiPen! EpiPen! Yeah, I've never been stung, so I don't even know if I'm allergic to them. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Well, be careful. <laughs> Take will. care of yourself. I will. Yeah, so this attack does not work. She takes off. Uh, she goes to the police station to report, hey, oh my God, my husband has been murdered. And Detective Ray is immediately like, well, you're full of shit. <laughs> This character sucks. He's He's the worst. Uh, So when that doesn't go over very well, she's collected by her mom and brought back to this ginormous penthouse. And this is where we get the first incident in which her mom shuts up her drawer of exposition secrets. Ooh. I just like, like, there's a a full on close up of her turning the key in this little box. And you're like, okay, sure. I mean, it'll come out eventually. I mean, I know we've like hinted at this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail when it actually does come out. But yeah, it's kind of like her little, it's her like little black box of secrets, of black secrets, actually. Mm -hmm. A little black box of black secrets. That's very accurate. Yeah. In the white, 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 white penthouse. Mm hmm. Very much that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, then we get this scene where it is eventually revealed to be a nightmare, but initially it seems like Candyman is there in the house. I do love that he kind of gives her a an art history slideshow in mm-hmm. the kitchen windows where he's like, this is me in painting form. This is my... <laughs> This is my lover. This is what happened to me. And she's like, cool, 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 cool. And then he's like, I'm going to kill your mom. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> this is the second time we have heard this story 
in this movie. There's nothing new to it. That's the problem, right? Well, and I'll wait till because I, I I don't know if I have an issue or not with the fact that we have to hear this story about his the brutal torture and murder, and then and then witness it at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's let's just double down on black pain as much as we possibly can. Right. Um. I mean, you could argue that it's because we're supposed to be super fucking horrified by what has actually happened to him, but I don't think the film does a good job of clarifying that. Well, I actually have a question for you two, because, I mean, I, this film arguably put, makes Candyman more of a sympathetic figure. Like, yes, we know his backstory in the first one, but he's still very much like a malicious, menacing figure and more of like you're kind of like, ooh, boogeyman. Mm-hmm. This one definitely humanizes him more. And I wonder, does that work for y'all? I feel like a lot of horror movies have tried to do that. And I, I don't, I mean, so you think about the whole Jason franchise, right? Yeah, you know, he right. drowns in water. You know, we're supposed to feel bad for his mom. You know, so, I, I, I mean, I understand why they do it specifically in this film, but it's the way that they did it that doesn't work for me. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean... Why do we have to, and again, this is the social justice in me jumping out. And again, I understand it's 1995. So I have to, I always, when I want to jump on my social justice, you know, soapbox, I have to like step back and go, okay, remember the time. But I'm thinking to myself, like, why is it that we always have to humanize a black body in the sense of like, he was mutilated slash beat through why does it have to be through slavery, right? Like, why yeah. do we have to do it from right. that lens? So as much as they try to give him that, that, that I don't know, as much as they were trying to give him that storyline, it just really didn't sit well with me in this film. I don't know why. It just didn't. No, that's. I, I think I think that's a fair assumption. I mean, mm-hmm. assumption. I think that's a fair opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it. It is weird to also do this film. Like Trace and I watched Antebellum earlier this year, as he referenced. Uh, did you see that one? I would not. Nope. I would not. Yeah, that's, that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's also th- fair. <laughs> that is 100% the appropriate reaction because it, like, there is just this long historical line of, mm-hmm. you know, if we're going to do black horror, then it has to be centered around slavery, which is like, right. there are interesting stories well, to be told there. But I'll even, I'll even correct you, though. Not even black horror. If we're going to tell black stories, stories it's going to be right. slavery. It always has to be rooted in slavery. <laughs> and I don't understand why, like, even in this film, like, if it would have been okay, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that I would want, and again, I don't, I think this, it, this conversation would be even more interesting if we could have seen the new Candyman and we could have juxtaposed oh, yeah. those stories together and said, okay, this is what they did. And this is why it's so important to give black people the right to tell black horror films, mm-hmm. you know, to, to tell black stories in, in regards to horror film. But I think that the one thing that really I struggled with, with this film was just that it didn't. It didn't, even when they tried to humanize him, it still didn't give Tony Todd's character a voice. Like, it, yeah, right. it still very much kind of made, it it, 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 it made the, the main character still a victim in a way, right? Like, oh, my family history, and mm. he's now chasing me because of that. Like, it still didn't give Tony, I don't know, it just didn't give what I think it was trying to give, personally. Well, yeah. it's, also, it's also about her, how she right. reacts to this secret and this honestly it treats it as trauma Uh for her to realize that she is the descendant of this person Mm -hmm. who is now a monster yeah and and that that, yeah you're right we we don't get a voice for the daniel character i do think that that's the the biggest problem like i actually think it works well in the first film and there's still problems with it in that regard like in a way helen is the villain of the original Candyman. Right. And I think that's fascinating, if not unproblematic. In this film, my biggest issue is I'm just like, why do we need another fucking white lady as our protagonist? Like, mm. why couldn't you have 
Matthew or his dad or someone else from that community, why couldn't this story have been told through that perspective? Like the Mm. people who are directly affected by this violence and this, like, like this film wants to dance around the dangers of certain communities and certain lifestyles, but it also isn't interested in exploring them. So we have to have this white lady kind of walk through it. Literally at one scene coming up, she walks down the street and you're just like, (laughs) Uh huh. Is the horror to supposed to be that she's walking in a black neighborhood? Right. What right. the fuck? Yeah, I, that scene for me was where I was like, I don't know why. Because and it would have been interesting. Like if I could retell this one, I would have loved to be able to frame it from you have these young black kids who don't take horror seriously this woman is saying hey you know i know this story about the candy man you don't want to play with it right and you know now we have these black kids and you know throughout new orleans playing with the candy man and he's chasing after them and you get that story that would have been fun for me right yeah Yeah. like that would have been really cool to be able to see it from like a young teenager lens of what it's like to be chased Mm -hmm. i don't know if you all saw vampires versus the bronx it's a really funny film but sort of like that right like you have these kids who know that candy man is a real thing they're trying to tell their parents and they're trying to invoke this movement i would have loved to see that in this film but this notion that you have this white woman who is running through black neighborhoods going i'm looking for this little black kid can you help me Mm -hmm. and she's walking through there like she's you know scared and cold and i'm like what is going on here yeah and of course they're all scary and intimidating like nobody Mm -hmm. wants to help her until finally that's actually where we're at so it's like we're Mm -hmm. introduced to matthew's father who is a reverend played by bill nunn and of course he you know he takes pity on her because he is a man of the cloth Like, save her before something terrible happens to her. And you're just like, Mm -hmm. she's literally just walking down a street. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get Matthew's shrine to Candyman, but also to her slightly uncomfortable. We we do get the dad, though, saying that line where he says the police don't give a damn that Matthew's gone. They figure it's just one less potential drug dealer or murderer to worry about. Which, again, that's very timely by today's standards, even. But, of course, still even Mm -hmm. in 95. 95, Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's also a one-off line, you know? Yeah. And then immediately after this she leaves and we just see a bunch of kids playing with a dead cat that's covered in bees Mm. so you're like okay well there's you know there's figures of quote-unquote good and these people are being horribly mistreated like nobody cares about them but then also oh these kids don't care about animals and Mm -hmm. and you're just like what is what is the messaging happening here? Because mm-hmm. again, it, it feels very much like, oh, she like, ooh, she's in a bad place. She shouldn't be seeing this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the wrong side of town. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she goes to visit Ethan in jail because he is still a character in this movie. <laughs> And this is this is very annoying. It it harkens back to what you said earlier, John, which is like that earlier scene he just deliberately decided not to tell her. And this is that same old shitty thing that they do in horror movies where he's mm. like, oh, well, I was trying to protect you by not telling you. Right. She's right. like, cool. Well, I'm in it now. Yeah, I, I hate that so much. <laughs> it's, it's such a terrible fucking trope. Yeah. So we then get a flashback from Ethan's perspective. It's the only time that we get somebody else's perspective in this movie. And it's where he found his dead dad in that Candyman mural room. And it leads us to a new clue. So the father had found a way to destroy Candyman, but she has to go and seek out a man named Thibodeau, who is an artist and apparently a snowball 
purveyor and he is played by matt clark i found this scene not only just perplexing but when he said that he didn't know a man by the name of thibodeau every other person in new orleans has the surname thibodeau so (laughs) that does not make sense i wonder if he's just like this lady looks stupid i can probably get away with this lie Mm -hmm. so what is this about this scene that 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 has y'all like scratching your heads just like why is it there is that yeah. what you're confused about uh, john well no because i know y'all mentioned like the snow cone scene which is a bizarre scene i was mostly struck just by the long shot we have of the snow cone being that that's stripped. why i just want to know why it's that long <laughs> I, I it doesn't need to be that long it felt like it was it literally felt like it was a five minute scene and i'm going why and then the other part of me is going who really eats snow cones at that time of night like i don't <laughs> Why is he well, even open? That well, was the question I had. Because, again, this is taking place on Fat Tuesday, on okay. Mardi Gras the day before Lent, because Ash Wednesday happens later in the film. And actually, that, that is right. Going back to your earlier criticism, John, like, it, there's no reason for this street to not be crowded as hell. Even if it's in the quote-unquote poor neighborhood, like, people are still partying on Mardi Gras. Like, all, actually, also, schools take Mardi Gras off as a holiday in right. New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So I'm just... It, it just, it felt like it, it, I'm like, it just didn't sit well. I'm like, why? Like, I'm like, I don't understand what, it, so I get why she went to him, but mm-hmm. I'm going like, why wasn't it just a very, you know, simple, I'm going to drop, hey, can I get some help? Okay. Like it, it just didn't feel, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel authentic for me. It's very much like this is a man who is shady because he's living a double life. He's got a secret back room, but also the front is a snow cone dispensary. And he's obviously mixed up in weird stuff because I think we're meant to assume that that drunk lady who's given her shit is like a sex worker, maybe, or just like a troubled woman. Mm -hmm. I definitely read this red snow cone, sorry, this red snowball bullshit as either a sex thing or a Well, snowballing is a sex thing, but it doesn't involve that. No, um, and we're not going to talk about that because we've talked about that before too. <laughs> no, I I think that this is it's like a visual signifier to tie in to the fact that this is the right Thibodeau, and he, you know, if this whole thing is about genealogy, then it's about blood. So he is the gateway to revealing the genealogy clue. I mean, and that's really... why they spend so much time pushing the syrup onto the snowball is that why we got that 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 shot mm-hmm. you know what uh, let's say you want to make a really pretentious read out of this it could be that the snow cone because it's white it is now tainting the whiteness uh, with red right okay yeah I, with blood yeah. okay i'm not saying you're wrong i'm not i mean i'm just going oh no okay i don't for I, the... I, I don't think that's the reason for it. I'm just, I'm being pretentious about it. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going, I feel like that's, I mean, you could be pretentious about this whole film at this point because <laughs> there's so many unwritten subtexts that it just doesn't make sense. But yeah, I, yeah. yes, I get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she accompanies him into the secret back room. And this is important because she's actually also being followed unbeknownst to her by detective Ray and some guy that we never learn his name and he never mm-hmm. appears again in the film. But Detective Ray is, of course, on her because he is now convinced that it is not Ethan who has been committing the murders, but Annie. This 90-pound woman is 
going around murdering people. <laughs> sure. Okay. So Thibodeau gives her the next clue, which is more or less that if she wants to break this curse, she has to find the hand mirror of Candyman's love, Carolyn, who will be eventually played by Carolyn Barclay. That's actually kind of funny, though, right? So Bill Condon has now done two movies that involve magic mirrors. One is this, and the other one is that Beauty and the Beast remake. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's got a type. <laughs> he probably used the same mirror prop. He probably did. <laughs> I love oh that Oh my god, it's, it's a cinematic universe. <laughs> oh man. And then uh, I mean, this movie could be considered a Beauty and the Bee story. Yeah? What? A Beauty and the Bee? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> also, that sounds like a Disney Plus show that I also want to watch. Yes, Beauty and the Bee. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, okay so annie is like having weird hallucination flashbacks that make no sense like why would she be getting this just by looking at a painting of carolyn and while this is happening poor thibodeau is just having a swarm of deadly bees unleashed upon him and then his (laughs) body gets thrown through the wall (laughs) and she's like oh shit i better run it's a fun little set piece but yeah I I do like it because I'm trying to think of the last time I saw a body just get thrown head first through a wall and somebody running by being like, whoa, what the shit's going on in there? (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Okay, so um, have we mentioned the slow-mo before this? Because we get some egregious slow-mo as she runs through this Mardi Gras parade and she's pursued by Candyman and... I think it's meant to be tense, but she just ducks down an alley and seemingly goes into a random person's house, but it's actually revealed to be her house. And let's just say this right here. Yeah, Condon directs the film as competently Eh. as he can. Sure. Uh, There is no atmosphere in this movie. Yeah. The lack of atmosphere means there's no scares, uh, except for those jump scares, which, as we've already said, are very egregious. And that's what really hurts this. Like, I, I was honestly watching this, like... I know I made a comment to her, like, when I watched Candyman, when I was a teenager, I thought it was boring. Obviously not the case anymore. But watching this, like, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of boring. Like, it's not, I'm not involved in this woman's plight, and it's just not filmed in a way that makes me feel on the edge of my seat. Right. No. Right. Yeah. I, it, um, it gives you very little space to be invested in the film, if mm-hmm. I think. That, that's what it, yeah. You, you're very mm-hmm. much, that's what I think the biggest issue is, is that you're not committed, nor are you invested in this woman's safety like you're you're, there's nothing i don't know there's just nothing that comes of it i think that's the thing that really makes it hard for me to you know in terms of watching it it's so hard because i feel like this movie gives us a lot of annie like it's trying to tell us who she is and how Mm -hmm. she feels and it's something between the performance and the writing and also yeah condon's sort of stilted direction that i just can't care yep that's pretty much it yeah so she's like cool i'm being pursued by this guy but now that i'm safe i'm going to take a shower so we get some (laughs) g-rated nudity and just in case you didn't see it coming she of course gives her belly a little bit of a rub just to let us know that she's pregnant because of course again genealogy we got to continue the line the cycle so I'm, i'm just gonna fast forward a little bit through some of this she goes to the reverend if she discovers these slave records and also she takes a trip to carolyn's gravesite 
plate where she finds out that Carolyn did have a daughter. So th- th- this is the thing, though, right? So in the first movie, we were told that his his body was burned, his ashes were spread on the ground that became Cabrini Green. Mm-hmm. Why does he have a space inside of a mausoleum? He doesn't. This is Carolyn's. No, his is right next to it. Is it? Yeah, I thought his was next to yeah. it. That's what I got. Yeah. Oh, maybe Carolyn was like, oh, because I don't have a place to go and visit him, I'll just give him, like, it, they... They bury the empty headstone. Yeah, <laughs> just an empty space next to her. <laughs> they, they do that sometimes if they can't recover yeah, bodies and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, sorry. We also learned that Daniel Robital was born in the slave quarters in her house. So at this point, she thinks that they are connected because of that. And again, that could have been an interesting thing where it was like, oh, we were the owners of this person, but it's not. It's actually that she's like his great 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 granddaughter no it's not even that far i mean on it because her mother is his granddaughter right oh okay so it's like a, it's not even like the, right because you're like oh like it's like it's clear yeah it's like great 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 no 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 it's like it's like not three that generations. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh fuck okay so um <laughs> So I'm uninterested in Annie. So let's just jump away from her for a little bit. Let's go back to the precinct because everybody cares about what's happening at the precinct. Right. And we get this extended sequence where Detective Ray is just berating Ethan about how Annie has committed all these murders. Ethan's like, you're kind of cuckoo. So Detective Ray just summons Candyman right then and there and is promptly murdered. It's probably the most gratifying moment in the film yeah it's good good. (laughs) especially when his body goes again in slow motion through the window and lands on that poor lady's desk (laughs) i was like well her day's ruined and now she needs therapy (laughs) and they put that uh they put i noticed that they have put up like a board in front of it too like there's a shot where you could see i don't know it's just so random but yes very much yes mm-hmm. <laughs> like we we still need this interrogation room but we can't Correct. have that open air coming in so let's board Correct. it up and just yeah, keep let's going. board it up and keep it moving <laughs> yeah ethan at this point is also shot and killed in slow motion trying to escape like like so unceremoniously to the point where we're just like why does this character even exist yeah mm-hmm and the, all the slow-mo shots, why? I think this is confusion for, oh, this will make the movie more cinematic and interesting. Oh, probably. okay. Um, I also think that the only reason Ethan and this detective get murdered here is because if not, it would go too long without a set piece. Mm, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, it's not a good reason, but it, it feels like somebody had the stopwatch and was like, we haven't had a murder in about 10 <laughs> to 12 minutes, so I'm going to need you to throw one in there. <sighs> So, okay, let's get a confrontation. Annie sneaks into her mom's penthouse. She unlocks the drawer of secrets to confirm that, ah, fuck, Candyman and I are related. Octavia shows up. She's super wasted. She's all like, no, he's not related to us. So we should talk about this scene, right? Like, this is, I mean, again, there's a lot that could be unpacked in this scene, specifically with Octavia's, like, essentially internalized racism how Mm -hmm. they are descendants of a dark skinned black man but are the whitest of white people (laughs) right right (laughs) i'm like rachel true wasn't available for this one like i mean Uh, right yeah yeah it's again i mean i mean again i don't have any personal experience with like i don't know with, with colorism i guess but i know it's an issue that exists yeah, very much yes. But because we're dealing with something that, like, you know, it's just white creators with white actors, it's just like, 
that's not even like a thing that's brought up is how they're white passing or like how 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 they have also I want to say even like profited off of this man's mm-hmm. murder by by like owning this plantation house. Yeah, like they have come through this crystal clear. The worst thing that they have is a couple of damning photographs that Octavia actively looks like she wants to get rid of and yet she just keeps locked up for a convenient reveal midway through this film right and you know we're doing the nightmare on elm street parent thing where it's like mom i can't believe you didn't tell me about the truth and the mom's like no it's not true glug glug Mm -hmm. glug 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 yeah uh i do like the line that you can't wash him away with a bottle sure (laughs) you go annie she's the hero here yeah, so of course this is where um, Candyman shows up, and he guts Octavia. It's pretty good. And she's still alive enough to activate Chekhov's alarm, because it was a big issue earlier when the kid showed up to say that Matthew had disappeared, and she was like, oh, I don't want to let people into my penthouse, it's also a panic room. And here she's like, <laughs> panic room, setting off this alarm. So the police burst in, and of course Annie is still a prime suspect, 90-pound Annie still is prime suspect so she runs out the back door which the police didn't bother to check Mm -hmm. (laughs) she runs into detective pam who we have not talked about because detective pam has not been in this movie for the most part Mm -hmm. and pam is like cool i believe you I'm going to let you go. And also I'm piecing out of this movie. You will never see me again. Yeah. Why did you cast this actress who actually is charismatic and this character could be interesting? It's, it's one of only a few people of color who actually has lines in this movie. Yeah. And what the fuck? Okay, sure. I spent more time looking at her eyes than I did her actual acting. (laughs) I don't know why I just did. (laughs) I mean, she's very beautiful. But that's it. That's her last scene. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> she is gone. Thank you, Pam. That is a set wrap on yeah. Detective Pam. Look, she doesn't even come in during the climax, like do anything. Like she's just oh out of the movie because her girl. Case you better is run. Yeah, she <laughs> gives her very much like slave, like massa coming. You better run. Like oh, it's yeah. just like why? Like, I don't understand it, but okay. Yeah. So. Oh my God, you are right because she has taken the back way out of the penthouse. So it's uh-huh. like it's an upstairs downstairs kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> so we're back on the street. We still got Mardi Gras shit happening. Uh, shout out to the couple who are just having sex on the sex side of the street. right on the wall, baby. Getting yeah, that, that 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 is Mardi Gras. That happens. there we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little bit of this, a little bit of beat action. Shout out to my man Kingfish. This is where we get to see him. He is speaking at the front of the parade in like the elevated building. He is dressed as Dionysus. And mm. yeah. That's cool. it. That's it. <laughs> so so the, 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 the hour we have just spent hearing his voiceover, it just means nothing at all. Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> Except, hey, kids, did you know that we're coming up on 10 minutes to midnight, which is when Annie's got to, like, do her shit. Wait, so is there, like, a time clock on this? It, it She's... I think the idea is that things will come to a head, like he will come for her at midnight on Lent. Okay. <laughs> if you say so. I... I mean, I just noticed because they keep referencing the countdown to the day of, and like right. he he does come for her right at the end of the day. So uh, Annie goes home back to her derelict mansion there, and this is where she finds Matthew. He's completely fine. He's just apparently been hanging out in this house the whole time. Question mark. 
I don't well, know why. Yeah, I was really confused, but I, I, I didn't even put it together with what you said earlier when you were like, oh, he's just staying at the slave house, which that I, the implication of that is just very bizarre. But yeah, he's just been standing. But okay, when did he go missing time-wise in this film? Because was it earlier that day? I was think it's it? earlier that day. So he's been missing for the better part of the day. Okay. That makes maybe a little bit more sense. Like, he wasn't, like, spending the night there and stuff. But also, everyone acts like he was abducted. And clearly, he's just, like, he he literally says, I've just been waiting for you to show up here. It's like, but why? Yeah, I don't understand it. It's just, he randomly pops up and there's no real good explanation for it. To the point where you think, oh, okay, it's because we need somebody else to put in danger so that Annie will do what Candyman needs her to do. But then... Matthew is kind of immediately booted out of this because she just falls through the floor into a crypt filled with poop water. And then it's her versus Candyman. Well, because this would have been a good opportunity to do the role role reversal and have him save her, right? Right. But they don't Mm -hmm. do that. (laughs) Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, again, Matthew is just another character the movie doesn't seem to know what to do with. Mm. Yeah, so she falls down through the floor of the slave quarters Candyman's there. She does find the hand mirror. This is kind of a cool looking set. We've got skeletons mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. hanging from the ceiling. It's Again, very poltergeisty. I feel like it's well. I feel like it's meant to be that kind of um, cultural critique, right? Like we're in the slave quarter, and these are bodies of former slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like cool. You gonna do anything more with no? Okay, no. Nope. Cool, let's just move on. Yeah, <laughs> just float out. All right, girl. So this is where we find out that the hand mirror is the secret of Candyman's strength, the keeper of his soul, the destiny of our family. That's that's the thing too. Each of these movies is a different thing. So like in the first one, it's like oh, people stop talking about him that he's forgotten. This one, it's a mirror. The third one, it's a painting. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> make up your mind, people. Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a little Wishmaster, a little Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. It's. Yeah, it's cobbled together. So this is where we get our flashback. Just in case you didn't know what the story was, hey folks, here's a scene of Tony Todd being chased, mutilated, smeared in honey. I do, like, shout out to this little shit boy and that hoity-toity bitch who give him the name Candyman and And say sweets to the sweet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because those are the kinds of deplorable white people that I want to see in a black horror film. Like, I want to see those two people, (laughs) but then I want to see them get murdered. Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen in this movie. It does not happen. Instead, we just get a terrible CGI swarm of bees. (laughs) So bad. Yeah. I do think the sawing off of the hand is a really, really good effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm of the mindset where I'm like, from a simple narrative standpoint, okay, I've already heard this story twice. I don't need to see it again. The yeah. only reason to see this scene is to see him suffer. That is yeah. the only reason this scene exists, and that is a problem for me. Not even, it, 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 I don't know. It, it's, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. I think particularly at this point in the film too, right? Like we've heard the story twice and now we're seeing it play out visually, but there's no new information being presented except for the fact that we literally see his image captured in the mirror and then Carolyn runs away with it. But we also already knew that from Annie's encounter with Thibodeau. So I appreciate that they're showing as opposed to telling, but they've already told. Right. 
So I don't know why we need it. And we really don't. But I think that that's the, the, the gist of this film. We really didn't even need the second film. However, <laughs> but but here we are. So and I don't say that disrespectfully. I just think if we're not going to, you know, if, if Candyman in himself was just this scary entity that was kind of, you know, thought up and or, you know, connected to like maybe some sort of like New New Orleans tradition and it he mm. comes every, you know, kind of like Jeepers Creepers, right? We know Jeepers Creeper comes what every 16, 17, whatever years, mm -hmm. you know, he flies around and eats children or eats, you know, teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> that's his jizz you know that's his, that that's his judge right that's his <laughs> sorry his just i was gonna say that's his judge that's his judge he goes after you know he goes after you know twink kids or twink, right. twink boys mm -hmm. however you know with this the story it's like we're constantly being brought back to this idea of like slavery and it's like why like why why are we here and i i think towards the end of the film even in that scene when you know we see him lose his hand and we're like oh, okay let's continue to keep you know the the black people who are watching this film let's keep reiterating what would have happened to them if they would have you know messed around with a white woman you mm -hmm. know in the early 1900s okay good to know like it's just it, it, i don't know there's just a lot of thoughts that i have about that scene in particularly and the the film definitely, like both the first and the second film lean into it, but it feels like this film leans into it a little bit harder, which is uh, his issue, his only issue was that he dared to fall in love with a white woman. And like this film opens up with, you know, the Purcell character literally saying something about like, I can't remember what the quote was, but it's something to do with like his love was his downfall or mm -hmm. his crime or something like that yeah and it feels like it wants to romanticize that like this character didn't deserve that but then the way that this film presents it is here's victim like black violence and then it turns there there's no moment of catharsis it's mm -hmm. just and this is what he became he's a monster he wants to kill this white lady now but again right. that's also because it's not about him and that that, right. that is a problem and this actually i mean it's from earlier when we we're getting the secret like the, the secret stuff the genealogy but condon does say he's like one of the things we could do in this movie is explore the issue of the great original sin of america of american history racism and on the and, and slavery and the idea of on symbolic terms that this white woman is somehow unable to completely create a life or create an identity for herself, and it's because she's sitting on a secret that generations before have buried deeper in the mud. It finally comes up and explodes and becomes something that she has to deal with. Okay. But she doesn't deal with but, it. But but even that with that statement, okay, sure, maybe the intention was good. Why are we making a commentary about racism and it's the white woman that has to deal with it? And then when we have the black man, he's not only a villain, but he's also just suffering through the whole thing. Right. That's basically my point. Let's make her fucking accountable and actually have to have her deal with it, not be like, oh, this poor woman, look at what she has to go through because of her drunk lying mom. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, that's the narrative about racism that really needs to be told. Mm -hmm. Poor Karen. <sighs> so we have now seen, yes, oh my gosh, this hand mirror, that is the key to everything. So let's get to this climax. This is an admittedly cool scene. So it's been raining this whole time and the floodgates presumably have broken <laughs> in some capacity because the walls begin to cave in well, and new orleans is super below sea level so like 
that's yeah. why like it's it's really easy to flood and like the issue with the cemeteries there is a big thing because sometimes like coffins will just come up out of the ground <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah just it's it's fun and i think this sequence actually looks this is the most interesting part of the film mm-hmm. visually for me so she almost drowns and it's only because the kids rescue her that she is saved but then Candyman does a little jesusy thing where he floats up out of the water and he's just kind of standing on it which is pretty cool and he doesn't attack her he just sort of stands there and talks to her so she's like cool i'm just gonna break this hand mirror and then 1995 fx calls and he cracks and explodes into a million cgi pieces that made me chuckle yeah (laughs) i did appreciate the um the cradle is your grave not mine i actually thought that was a pretty good like send out for her to say (laughs) all right but yeah that 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 1995 cgi is a unintentionally i mean but it didn't even look good in 95 you know no this actually again reminded me of lord of illusions where we talked about how not good some of those effects Mm. were and i think they just hadn't really figured out how to do things with people like you Mm. they didn't know how to break people apart in a convincing way again this would have been something where i would have loved to have seen some kind of practical effect where maybe he explodes or just vanishes in some capacity yeah or even a whole, like, you know, he combusts into a whole bunch of bees. Like, that would have been really right. interesting. And then the bees oh, fly right. away. Would have made more sense. Mm-hmm. I would have been like, oh, okay, you know, or they go, you know, and then they fly into, like, a hive. And you know, it's just something to that sort. But the, the CGI in during that scene was what I think made me chuckle the loudest. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just, yeah. it was bad. It was it's bad. not good. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they are fine now. They escape, and this slave house is swept away in the flood. So, <laughs> our denouement is the next morning we see Annie. She is dressed up in traditional final girl accoutrement. So, she's got her white tank top on, and she and Matthew are getting communion before they wander out into the dawn. So... It's a little on the nose, but sure, it works. (laughs) And then we flash forward to years later where Annie, because remember, she was pregnant. She now has a daughter of her own who is named Caroline, and she is showing family photos, which now includes both Carolyn as well as Daniel Robitel. So it kind of feels like this is meant to be that moment of catharsis where, okay, Annie has now accepted who she is, what her family line is, how she is related to this trauma, and she has welcomed it by passing the story along. So this idea of saying not Candyman, but Daniel Robitaille, and it's all good. And then, of course, this little brat wakes up and she wants to look at the mirrors in her mobile and summon Candyman, and we end with Annie rushing in and keeping her quiet before she can say it a fifth time. Mm-hmm. I that jump scare got me. I won't lie. I, I actually oh, really? really that was the one effective jump scare of this movie. <laughs> the very final scene. I have mixed thoughts about that though. You know, because it's okay. So she's she has to be comfortable passing on the story. Like she has to accept it. You can read it one of two ways though, right? It's either like she's accepting the fact that she is a descendant of this villainous person, or if you want to make go the extra layer, it's oh no, it, she's a descendant of a villainous black person so like which which one is the one that she's having to have to come to to come to terms with more right that it's a black man or that it's a villainous man oh i read it as because she's naming daniel and not Candyman. she has separated Mm. the two of them so she is acknowledging 
the slave who, you know, made the mistake of falling in love with a white woman and then he was killed for it. So she's saying, yes, that is part of the family. And she's not acknowledging Candyman and the legend and the murder. Right. Which to me is kind of like, well, it's dissociation. And you're you're basically just saying this terrible thing did not produce this other terrible thing. So that's some selective memory, but sure. <laughs> that's it then, right? I mean, like, it, listeners, if you don't know, Caroline, the little girl, is the main character in the third one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Played by Baywatch's Donna Derrico with giant boobs that the director-writer literally cannot help but salivate and, like, jizzing about all the time. <laughs> um, Final thoughts on Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, y'all? My final thoughts would be you have got to be very, very, very bored Um, (laughs) if this is your go-to however if you are a person who enjoys you know really bad films i think and and i say really bad films (laughs) lovingly um if you're if you're if you if you're looking if you're not looking to think too much during a film this is a great film for that do i think that there is space for this film to be rethought and re-envisioned yes i think there's a lot of potential for this film to be re-envisioned but I definitely think that this film is one of those films that will probably go down in the history of if I never have to see it again it's probably going to be too soon (laughs) not being mean but that's just real yeah no I I don't I don't I mean I I think I don't think it's mean I think it's a valid and I think especially too in the what 25 years since this film has come out and like how much we as a society have changed and also not changed Mm -hmm. right I do I do wish like you that we could see Nia DaCosta's film because I think it's going to be interesting to see if that will maybe retroactively like put the sequel because do we is it doing the Halloween thing where it's kind of ignoring the sequels I think it might only be acknowledging the first film which is fine with me so like then the the second and third film can just kind of be these fun like alternate dimension Candyman (laughs) films I guess right right they're the the snow cone of the Candyman world. <laughs> Pleasant yes. diversions, a little bit sweet, and mm-hmm. completely inconsequential. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm just kind of in the mindset where it's like, I, I didn't hate it. Um, obviously, when you're looking at it with the critical eye, like, you know, it's, there are, and now especially in the, in the current climate we live in today, the political climate, it's, it's definitely an interesting watch that there are a lot of issues with. I don't think there was any like ill intent here. I mean, I think everyone had the best of intentions. I think they all thought they were just making a horror movie. Like there was no real thought at mm-hmm. at messages or themes here, even though Condon clearly like mentions them. But right. the, the screenplay doesn't do anything to do it to develop those ideas, as we said ad nauseum. It's yeah, it's fine. Like I, I it's just I wish. I wish it was just a bit more exciting, and it's not. It, it's honestly kind of a boring film, but yeah, is, I mean, I'm glad I get to finally see it, and now I'll be able to go into the to Dacosta's film with, like, you know, having seen the whole original trilogy, which is, I guess, mm-hmm. good. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, this is a frustrating watch. I don't disagree with anything either one of you has said. It's, you know, it's a fine film. If you're willing to overlook a lot of things or not think about it critically, I do just feel really frustrated at the idea that and correct me if i'm wrong but really this is the only franchise featuring like a marginalized like a a black villain and it frustrates me that a there's only three films in it that two of them aren't very good and really tony todd doesn't get to stretch his acting muscles very much so 
it, it just kind of reinforces this idea where I, I understand why there's a lot of black horror fans who might look at this and be like, well, this is the only franchise that we get. It's not all that good. And also all of these other supporting characters kind of suck. So mm-hmm. like, why are we being fed leftovers when we love the genre as much as other people? Like mm-hmm. if I was a black viewer, I would be very frustrated watching this movie. Cause I'd be like, this is not a story that I'm interested in seeing told. Right. And like, frankly, that's what excites me the most about DaCosta's vision is I don't think we're going to get a fucking white lady in the front talking about racism mm-hmm. and like slavery. I think we're going to have black bodies front and center. I'm hoping that trauma and slavery, if it is part of that narrative, is going to be more thoughtfully incorporated into the film or maybe jettisoned if we're just going to like talk about other things for a fucking change. Mm-hmm. sorry that was ranty um no it's not i think it's very fair when you're talking about any film that deals with major social issues i mean like again like if if this is also if it's added a queer element to it and handled the things in a similarly well i'm sorry if it mishandled them in a similar way we would ha- we would also want to rant about it. i think it's something that you have to be able to talk about mm-hmm. yeah yeah <sighs> but <laughs> heady conversation for a not heady movie <laughs> So, um, okay, well, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, John, can you let everyone know where they can find you on social media? Yes, if you want to hear more about my rants and about how <laughs> I ultimately am not pleased with certain films that are coming out, um, feel free to follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook by using the hashtag at Dr. John Paul. You can also find me at www.drjohnpaul.com. And you actually have to spell that out. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-J-O-N-P-A-U-L. <laughs> that happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. I was looking for you and and I'm like uh, which kind of I put DR and I'm like no you have to spell out the doctor and then the J the John has no H and they're oh okay so the end spelling is hard (laughs) yeah sorry but here we are well thank you again for coming on again I know that this may not have been the first Candyman film you would ever want to talk about but we really appreciate it (laughs) no it was fun it was really fun it was fun to watch it it was fun to watch it with a more critical eye and it was also really fun to break it down I had I really had a good time y'all good yeah well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice but Apple Podcasts is our podcatcher of choice so do that one and if you want even more Horror Queers content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horror queers November is pretty much over after this so we're moving into December Mm -hmm. uh, the last month of this hellish fucking year (laughs) (sighs) we'll of course be doing our best in worst horror films is a mini sub but we'll also have full-length episodes on brendan cronenberg's possessor and christopher landon's freaky which is finally hitting vod after a short uh, theatrical stint and we'll also have an audio commentary on dial code santa claus which is currently streaming on shutter if y'all just had a big question mark pop over your heads that's understandable it is a really fucking fun awesome r-rated home alone movie that actually came out the year before home alone um mm-hmm. the director of this film tried to sue the studio when home alone came out saying it was plagiarism <laughs> yeah apparently it kicks ass so i'm excited to check it out it's amazing it's super fun joe what are we talking about next week Well, as you said, because we are out of November and into December, I'm feeling just a touch festive. So I thought we should kick off the month of December with a little Krampus action. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) I love that movie so much. 
Well, shit. We brought you on for a film that you hated. <laughs> well, no, I, was I, like, and cool, I didn't hate it. Let's be month. clear. I didn't. In the words of Rihanna, let's be clear. I did not hate it. I I just I have a lot of thoughts about it. But I, Crumpus is one of my all time favorite movies. FYI, I just want to share oh, that. Oh, oh my god. god. Okay. <laughs> no, I really like it. I think Joe is a bit in the kind of on the mid level for it, but I'm hoping that he like finds a new appreciation for it when he rewatches it. Yeah, I'm. It's I'm, so good. Okay, well, I'm I'm going in with new eyes, so now that I know exactly what it's going to be doing, yeah. I'm excited to revisit it. Okay. <laughs> well, um, again, everyone, thank you for listening. John, thank you for coming on. And on that note, we can cross out Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. <laughs> You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>